Hello and welcome to The Culture Bunker, your weekend pop culture pullout. I'm Sean Pattenden. And I'm Alex Andrew. This week we are delighted to be joined by Dr. Catherine Ann Davies, a.k.a. Welsh multi-instrumentalist, The Anchoress. We also welcome podcast producer, formerly music writer, Rob Fitzpatrick to the show. Plus, death on the instalment plan. We also watch series two of Upload on Amazon Prime. Plus, Handy Scandy. We hear the new album from Norwegian musician and novelist Jenny Hval. And be careful, Shan and Jelena have been to see award-winning Kosovan post-conflict movie, Hive. All this and more on this week's Culture Bunker. Welcome to the Culture Bunker and to our first guest, the anchoress, Catherine Ann Davies. Catherine, how are you and where are you calling from? Hello, I'm okay. A little bit tired and bleary-eyed from some very late studio sessions this week. And I am in Buckinghamshire. Not partying then. (laughs) You're not partying there, you're just up late making music. Yeah, working incredibly unsociable hours when project deadlines loom. um, Or something very exciting that I can't talk about yet, unfortunately. Otherwise, I would love to share with you the reason for my massive eye bags that everyone (laughs) can hear probably flapping against my face. Lockdown has had its challenges, but your album, The Art of Losing, which we raved about on the show, has regularly appeared in the top 10 album of the year charts across the board. Are you going to be treading the boards anytime soon or are live performances still completely on hold? We've postponed the tour for, I think it's the second time now, but it is, I think it was announced this morning, actually, that I am, fingers crossed, toes crossed, and Boris, hopefully out of the picture, going to be back on the road next May. Um, for a proper UK tour. But as I say, it's been postponed for nearly two years now, so I don't want to jinx it. You're no um, stranger to podcasts. You've done your own. Plus, you were invited on Elton John's show. What was that like? Do you know what? It was incredibly difficult to keep my cool. And there's little video <laughs> footage of me kind of just looking like this. <laughs> it was very um, overwhelming. What was more overwhelming was when I he, he just phoned my phone got my phone number somehow wow one day and I was in the garden with my mum and I was thinking I'm looking at my mum kind of going <laughs> she's like who are you talking to and I'm like you're not going to believe it but yeah it was a it was one of those moments I think I'll you know remember my entire life it was just amazing really. I'm, I'm amazed you didn't think that it was a friend of yours playing a trick on you when I got a similar call on my mobile once I, my response was shut up when Elton <laughs> called you Alex no uh, Elton didn't call me but <laughs> someone I, I agree that was his style because I got a couple of friends that had had sort of random say random things or congratulatory phone calls from him before so I knew it was that he kind of had a precedent for it um, maybe I should have been more sceptical because I'm laying myself open for kind of hoax calls now aren't I really he's a big big fan of new music isn't he and Yard Act are another act that that has been a recipient of his affections is it important do you think to keep informed of all new kinds of music as a musician to sort of keep your ear to the ground across genres or or does it interfere with a creating the creative process actually to do I think a a little bit of both I mean since I've kind of been shielding for the last two years I've been doing a bit of lecturing myself on a a postgraduate course in production and I found it really lovely one of the aspects of doing it is kind of being exposed to all this new music that I wouldn't otherwise listen to both the music the students Mm. are making but also the stuff that they're listening to what they're into and I find it kind of sort of refreshes my sonic palette and it refreshes my sense of you know what's going on out there but equally I kind of agree with you that when you're making your own work you sort of don't want to listen to anything else because you don't want it to influence you so it's a bit of both if that's possible you you live in dread of waking up in some sort of court case in 10 years time where subconsciously you've lifted Mm. a riff or someone without even realizing exactly it's going to be relevant so obviously some of the things we're going to talk about today is is why i've actually tended to listen to of late a lot of instrumental music and stuff that's quite Mm. far away from what i do so that you have no fear of influence then I'm sure it seeps in regardless, doesn't it? Well, we'll chat a lot more in a bit. We have another guest, uh, have we not, Sean? We certainly do. 
Returning to the show, Rob Fitzpatrick is a former music journalist for titles such as Word, Mixmag and The Guardian, but he left. He did work at <coughs> Spotify creating podcasts, but he is apparently now on garden leave and developing a lot of new exciting projects. Hello, Rob. How are you? Hi, Sean. I'm very good. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. Wonderful. Great to have you. So what have you been working on? Is it all incredibly secret in this garden leave of yours? It is incredibly secret. (laughs) And uh, yeah, I, yes, I'm, yes, it is incredibly secret. (laughs) It's incredibly secret. (laughs) But needless to say, something exciting happens. It is incredibly secret. Yeah. Right, fine. But we're going to expect a great announcement. Follow follow Rob on Twitter to find out more. Let me ask you about Ronnie and yeah. Clyde. This is your musical outfit, I believe. And it's been going a while, this band, has it? And uh, suddenly there's been a resurgence. Well, Tell yeah, we, um, it's been going a lot longer than any of the other things. Um, we mm-hmm. put our first music out in like 1994 or maybe 1995. Um, we were just children, obviously. And um, <laughs> we... During lockdown, the first great lockdown of 2020, we just sort of started, you know, like everybody else in the world, started doing it again and sort of just snowballed into actually creating proper actual new music. And then we thought, well, we should do a new album as it had been 24 years since the last Mm. one. Uh, Mm. And so we finished that towards the end of last year and are very soon to sign a deal for that album with... An exciting label. So it's very exciting times um, all round. Absolutely. You've had a, su- a surprise smash on the streamers. <laughs> a, surprise, a surprise smash <laughs> on the streamers. Yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, they've all, I, I mean, like, they've all done, they've all done very well, as uh, what's his name used to say in, um, in uh, Are You Being Served? Yeah, it's like, I don't know. I mean, who knew, right? It's, we completely, every single thing has just been done off our own bat. Uh, we recorded it mm. at Ronnie's studio. There's been no money, no help, no anything from anybody. But they just, some of them just found a home on, you know, they've been sort of playlisted all over the place. And, you know, had support on, you know, John Kennedy and sort of, um, and on uh, Six Music and stuff like that as well. So it's been like amazing to, it's been an amazing Mm -hmm. thing to have this, having been out of the game for such a long time, to kind of come back with no expectations whatsoever. And like, (laughs) there's some people going, oh, this is quite nice. Tell us, for for the listeners who haven't heard it, what sort of genre are we talking about, Rob? Uh, symphonic metal. <laughs> Somehow, I didn't think you were going to say. That. <laughs> it's not. Yeah, it's not. It's, I wish it was symphonic. Actually, I don't. I don't. Uh, no, it's. What is it? Uh, what is it? Uh, what is it, Rob? What is it? Well, it's sort of. It's it's very kind of melodic, breakbeaty. Uh, lots of it's sort of a bit psychedelic. It's now music for now people. It's now isn't music it? for now people. Psychedelic lounge core for dub <laughs> wise crazy people. Before we move on, a reminder you can get the Culture Bunker and all of our shows early and without adverts when you support the bunker on Patreon. That means daily episodes on politics, science, pop culture, and much more, plus all manner of exciting merch to make you look good and feel great. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out more. Now, you heard Catherine earlier. The Anchoress is a classically trained multi-instrumentalist whose second album of 2020, The Art of Losing, appeared as if out of nowhere, almost, and hit the right note. Blustering, epic, anthemic, almost windswept and a little bit emotional. The songs on the album resonated with even hardened city types like us. And for an album whose central theme is loss, there are as many bangers as you can wave a stick at. (laughs) A big stick. The album has just been released in expanded edition, so you get a lot more for your so-called buck. We'll be talking about it after we listen to a track. And why not? The Art of Losing. A warm welcome to you again, Catherine. Well, thank you for having me. It's uh, yeah, it's strange to be talking about the album, but you know, a year after it originally came out, it's got a, it's got legs. I think. Okay? Yes, it certainly has. It has got a tail, as they say. What did you make of the huge reaction to the art of losing? If that's not an oversimplified question, 
You know, it was really surreal because so much of it kind of took place online. You know, there wasn't even mm. sort of in stores or gigs or, you know, even going into radio shows. So it was all quite as if in a dream, as if I had imagined it. So it was quite, in a way, I think that made it easier to digest because it was quite a strange thing, I think, to be celebrated for your misery. Because <laughs> 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 it, it's a really odd thing to kind of grapple with ethically in your head, you know you've made this thing out of a lot of awful shit that's happened to you, a lot of awful stuff that's happened to you. And I think that that's really hard to sort of square with yourself. Um, so I think that it made it a lot easier to be doing that, you know, remotely and virtually a lot of the time. So, yeah, I may have just imagined it all, to be honest. <laughs> Maybe my mum wrote all those lines we were using the Sunday time. No, I saw them too. I think they do exist. They're definitely real. <laughs> They're definitely real. And um, the album seemed to take quite a while to make. And as I say, it's had, it had this long tail, as we call it. Does it feel like it's more of a project? Maybe it's more of a film or something. You know, films usually take 10 or more years to do. This, this, this sort of has become this beast. It's not just the quick fire, we'll go in the studio, we'll record some songs and then it's a hit. But there's a kind of weight and a length to it that makes it rather satisfying. Yeah, it's sort of, for me, I always thought of this project more as like writing a novel, really, and kind of, you know, wanted to kind of take my time to construct it properly, to structure it properly. I also had so many other things going on at the same time. I was touring with Simple Minds in Europe, you know, like snatching odd days back in the studio, stockpiling stuff to edit. I was editing on planes, in trains, in hotel rooms. It was a really strange way to make a record and, and not one that I had attempted before. But in a way, it's it set me up so well for obviously what is to come, which is, you know, now having to create in relative seclusion yeah, yeah. and not really being able to kind of interact with the outside world. You know, I was I was there before the pandemic happened doing it <laughs> doing a lot of remote sessions like Sterling Campbell who did the drums on the record um who obviously best known for playing with, with Bowie and Duran Duran mm. he did everything remotely from New York you know over a little screen like this so I was kind of trying out this remote way of, mm. of collaborating before it was in, in fashion yeah yes very prescient <laughs> yes it was all your idea um as you've just mentioned it comes from a place of trauma and grief and loss. These are big things. But as we mentioned, there are plenty of bangers in there. How easy is it to push grief out into a sort of theatrical sphere? What is very internal to make it external? And I say, you know, these are they're not celebratory songs. They're more of a roar, but they are still this roar. Yeah, I think the the songs themselves are probably more the product of the kind of the chaos and the turmoil and the anger that I was feeling about what I was going through. Um, You know, my dad died and then I went through a series of of miscarriages um, and then myself had um, a really horrible diagnosis um, of cervical cancer. So it it was kind of all of the anger and there was no kind of time to contemplate and be sad and have a kind of pity party. So, and I think that that's sort of what expresses itself in in the music, and that it is this sort of, you know, like Dylan Thomas, Rage Against the Dying of the Light. It's not a, a Nick Cave esque, plaintive, <laughs> mournful ballad. Mm. Um, I guess that didn't interest me either, but it certainly wasn't reflective of of that kind of chaotic mindset that I was in. I, I guess it's in a way, it's I sort of think of the album as being more of a record of trauma rather than of loss. If that makes more sense. But in, it really helped, actually, to, to have had the pandemic because that put a natural pause on things. That put a delay of about 18 months of the record coming out. And in that time, I did a lot of therapy, uh, a lot of healing, and a lot of squaring with myself to be okay with talking about baby loss, which I couldn't have done. So that it was just really a series of serendipitous events that kind of made it possible for me to make it, first of all. And then to have that control, I think, over when it was going to come out, was I ready to talk about these things and share them? But it's, yeah, to look back at it now, I, I can't believe that I'd gone from being an artist that was probably quite known for being very private and very, um, all about constructing these kind mm-hmm. of fictional narratives and very theatrical, to sharing some of the most personal and, and really troubling moments of my in, entire life. You know, the, the, the record ended up not only diving into what was happening to me then, but going right back to my to my teenage years and, and the sexual assault that I experienced then. And if you'd have told me that I would put that into a song and put it on a record and put it out and talk mm. about it, even three years ago, I would have just laughed. Mm. It's, it's been a real journey for me of thinking about, you know, what kind of music do I want to make? And 
you know, what conversations do I want to start culturally as well? If that's not some too grand and uh, self-important. <laughs> Oh, it's good. We like self-important. <laughs> Big fans. <laughs> I, I, I was listening to the album Exponents again this morning as yeah, I was yeah. making notes for the show. And I kept coming back to this aphorism, or maybe it's a quote, I don't know which, that grief is love with nowhere to go. Mm. That's what it felt like. Like, you know, there was all this stuff that mm. had lost its target. And so that's why it feels like a roar, I think. Mm. And that's why it's probably very... Th- very therapeutic, very un-British <laughs> and a very sort of healthy thing to do to to let it all out there rather than internalise everything and, and just make a cup of tea. Yeah, definitely. I had, I had a moment listening back to The Master when it was finally finished, sitting in a supermarket car park, just sitting there with my headphones listening and I'm literally like tears streaming down my face and it felt like a letting go of something and then it's like, okay, put that on the shelf for a bit and when I'm ready then it can come out and people can hear it but it yeah it's taken some time to be ready for that now you say you have collaborators on there and James Dean Bradfield from the Mannix is on there how did you persuade him to be on it or was he leaping at the chance already blackmail (laughs) (laughs) it was really a returning of of favours so I'd performed with him quite a few times duetted on stage with them and then they asked me he asked me to be his Caitlin, to his Dylan Thomas on Dylan and Caitlin, mm. um, on their last record. So it was a bit of a kind of favour that I knew I could call in at some point, but still wasn't entirely sure he was going to say yes. <laughs> um, but he ends up being on two tracks in the end. So yeah. he sings in the exchange, and then he also plays guitar on, on Show Your Face. So I got two mm. for the price of one. I bumped into him a few years ago. I said, how are you? And I went, well, you know, he said, how are you? And, uh, you know, just sort of bobbling along. How are you, James? He went... You know, I sometimes sit and I think about making a record. I can't be bothered at the moment. I just thought, oh, I love you. You're so great. <laughs> There's none of the pomp about you. You just can't be bothered at the moment. But then when you make one, it will be brilliant. <laughs> he is effortlessly brilliant. And that's, yes. that's something I definitely discovered. You know, just the way that he kind of just pops out a guitar solo without thinking about it. And that yeah. voice is obviously just, it's just completely natural and effortless mm. for him. And it's like a hurricane. If you're in the room with him or on stage with him, mm. the sheer force of that breath, I've never yeah. heard anyone sing so loudly. Now, you have said you're quite proud of yourself for managing to rhyme monopoly with existential melancholy and misogyny as well. <laughs> you have a PhD also. I'm saying the two must be linked. Are we less frightened of rock stars with brains than ever before? Do you know what? I was talking about this the other day on, on another podcast where I was saying I hid it for a really long time when I was making my first record mm. that I was doing my PhD at the same time. One, because I was ashamed that that was the way I was paying <laughs> to do music. So I, I had to like a research grant. Couldn't have lived in London otherwise. Mm. Um, but also because I thought it wasn't cool to be smart. I thought that rock stars couldn't be doing PhDs. I just thought, mm. you know, that's just really uncool. And it's taken me a long time to kind of come out. <laughs> <laughs> and make it, you know, put at the forefront of, yeah. of who I am because, it, you know, I'm a geek and I'm a bit strange and that's okay. But yeah, I don't know if it's okay for the rock stars to have PhDs, but it, it, I do. So. Oh, I like it. <laughs> Some of them also could take a little hiatus and go and get one as well. <laughs> I want to ask also so you persuaded James Dean Bradfield, you also persuaded Father Simon Cutmore to guest on this. Is it easy getting a vicar on board as a musician? It is because you have to think very carefully about what they're putting their name to as the project. Mm. Um, and he was someone I'd had some conversations with any, anyway about, we both had a fascination with Julian of Norwich, the original mm. Anchoress. Mm. And so it kind of felt appropriate for him to speak her words on, on that track, All Shall Be Well, um, where he speaks some lines from, from her revelations of divine love. But it was, I got him to, I really did take the piss with him, to be honest. I said, can you try it in some different rooms? So he would go to different churches and record it for me. And I'd go, nah, not liking the <laughs> reverb on that one, Simon. Can you try another room? <laughs> he was very patient with me. It just felt very frog to do it as well. Mm, you know, having a yeah. <laughs> I wonder if he got points and they go towards the church roof fund. Also, just very quickly, I read his blog this morning because I found him, rectorymusings.co.uk, includes references, obviously, to Jesus, but also Ariana Grande and Fight Club. He's so cool. <laughs> He's a I love cool it. He's got excellent music. My roof is falling down. Maybe need... I should do something. <laughs> you need, yes, some crowdfunder. Um, one thing I do want to ask, the Oberon OB6 synth makes a few appearances on the record. 
you have an absolute love for this synthesizer. You said you were listening to Depeche Mode, but it sparkles in the tracks. It's something that when you know it's on it, you go, well, of course. And you can see it's got almost a voice of its own. It's a vocalist in a way, sort of adding to the tracks. Tell us about the geeky love you have for the Oberon OB6, please. Well, it was partly to do with what I was also doing at the same time, which was restoring the Simple Minds and having to learn that back catalogue mm. and try and replicate some of those kind of amazing vintage sounds that they had. So any excuse, I started buying vintage synths or the, or the vintage reissues in a lot of mm. cases. And it also kind of coincides with my fascination with Prince as well. He was also oh. a big OB6 user. Um, and to be honest, it was just an excuse to indulge in some late night eBay purchasing sessions. <laughs> <laughs> I see. And then, you know, every new instrument I got was kind of the catalyst for me to start a new track. Because I'm, I'm not a natural songwriter, a bit like James Dean Bradford. I can't be asked. <laughs> so if I get a new bit of gear, it forces me to kind of sit down and explore what it can do and then find the sounds that I like. And that's the beginning of the song. Mm. So that's what you hear on Show Your Face. That's me mm-hmm. literally twiddling in the studio with the new sounds first sound i found that i liked that's what you hear that's that's the main synth sounds mm-hmm. i'm not going to pretend that you know i spent weeks reading the um instruction manual because i've yeah. never read it <laughs> so you're working on some secret stuff now is there anything you can tell us about we've got the tour next year what can you reveal anything well i'm, I'm thinking about the new record thinking <laughs> okay um and i'm, I'm just started working on um, a covers album project as well with marcel van limpbeek who obviously has worked with tori amos for the last mm-hmm. couple of years I've, I've sort of just got a few irons in the fire not not kind of putting any pressure on myself i think it's mm-hmm. quite hard to get going on something new when you i mean i've been promoting the art of losing now for a year um and obviously spent some time making five new piece of tracks for it as well that have come out in the expanded edition so i spent a lot of time with this record so it's i need a bit of a push to start something new and it's mm. not quite announced itself yet and i'm busy i'm mixing for other people as well producing for other artists doing endless remixes as well which is keeping me busy so yeah it's some um, lots going on but nothing exciting to announce yet the expanded edition as we say the record is out now so please buy on bang camp Don't stream it. Unless you want to stream it, then buy it on Bandcamp, maybe. Every week we ask our guests to bring in a current favourite track of theirs and everyone wins. They go straight on the playlist. The link is in our show notes. Catherine, your tune is Sigourney Weaver Fan Club President by Worried About Satan. Why did you choose that one? Partly because it's eight and a half minutes long. <laughs> and I wanted to be an awkward bugger. But um, also, um, Worried About Satan, a.k.a. Gavin Miller, is, is somebody that I've worked with quite a lot over the last few years. Um, he's done tons of remixes for me. And also his other half, Sophie, has played in my live band as well. So we're big fans of one another. And when I saw this track, that he released it. Um, the first thing I saw was the cover, which was this Sigourney Weaver Frank up president t-shirt and I was like you yes. can make that first of all um, and I, sort of what I mentioned briefly earlier just I've been listening to a lot of instrumental music of late I think as a kind of holiday to get away from you know being in the studio all the time and working on tracks as a musician you often sort of need something to reset your all centers hmm. and this track does that for me you know it's eight and a half minutes of pure kind of audio pleasure but without the need to kind of focus on the lyric or on the voice on the top line. And I absolutely love that. It's really interesting. And um, the video for it uh, kind of mimics exactly that aesthetic. I've only heard it. It's a T-shirt on a bed. Rather than... And what's interesting is that you spend the first minute waiting for it to develop into something else and then you kind of give up <laughs> and resign to it both sound-wise and yeah. image-wise yeah. and you end up in this weird sort of trance just come on feel the looking noise looking at this t-shirt and mm. listening to these these string arrangements mm. it's, yeah I, I thought it was very good and here's a little taste of it
Now, Rob, what's your current favourite track and why do you love it so? I went for a track by an artist called Sea Lemon, who is a 26-year-old uh, songwriter called Natalie Liu. And she lives in Seattle. I had never heard of her until um, I listened to this track, just popped up the other day. I just, I totally loved it. It's called Turn Away. And it's, it's the sort of song that has been written, I would say, let's call it a thousand times. It's, but it's just, there's something ever since probably Robert Smith first wrote it in about 1985. It's sort of, it's, it's melodic. It's kind of dream poppy. It's, uh, it's got some lovely kind of changes in it. It's definitely, you, it sparkles little things in your brain when you think, I've heard this before. But it's just done with a kind of, a sort of innocence is a bit of a odd mm, way to It's very spring-like it. it's as well. It goes with the weather this week, I It's thought. just, you know what it was? I listen to a lot of new music a lot of the time. And I'm always, I'm always surprised in a pleasant way about just how much great music is being made and it's just there in front of you. And it's like, mm, this is just mm. fantastic. It was a fantastic kind of resource. And this thing, I was, I was literally listening to it thinking, I, need to, I want to find something brand new to, for this show. Mm. And then as I was listening to it, I was waiting to not like it, you know, thinking, waiting to kind of go skip past it and get to the next one. I just thought, no, 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 I just really, really like it. And I mm, kept going back mm. to it. Lovely track. Thank you, Natalie. Uh, I have no idea who you are, but uh, you've made a beautiful record. <laughs> Lovely. And oh. will wonders never cease. We have clearance for that too. Yay. I don't know, I don't know what's happened. Has there been an internet attack that has caused all the executives to become <laughs> unplugged an from the Matrix <laughs> or something? I, I don't I know. suspect but here, that when you say executive, it's probably someone sitting in a room in Seattle going, yeah, all right then. I don't think there's many executives <laughs> attached to uh, Spirit Goth Records. which um, (laughs) Our favourite kind of executive. Yeah, absolutely. Mine too. (laughs) And here's a taste of it now. After two years of waiting, and with a curtailed seven-episode season because of COVID scuppering the shooting schedule, the second season of Upload dropped on Amazon Prime a few days ago. Upload by co-creator of Parks and Recreation, King of the Hill, and the US version of The Office, Greg Daniels, is all about tech entrepreneur Nathan Brown, who dies unexpectedly and is uploaded to the digital afterlife, trapped inside the family data plan of his awful girlfriend, (laughs) while falling in love with Nora Anthony, his living customer service agent. Here's a little taste. His vials are dropping. We're losing him. Do we really want to upload? We could be together forever. You are so amazing. But forever is just like so long. Uploads that way, ORs the other way. What do you want to do? Three, two, one. Upload. Hello, Nathan. Ten fingers and toes? Pretty seamless. This is the first day of the rest of your afterlife. You may find yourself living in a beautiful house. Cool. Welcome to Lakeview. Uplifting views, timeless Americana. It's 10 a.m. Breakfast is over. No! It's not even real food! Two guy coming through. This one. Do I dare? Dare. Yes. Hey, boundaries. Cute. He thinks he's cute. You may ask yourself, how did I get here? Denied. In-app purchase required. Uh. Is this what you look like for real? You're not some old dude or something? No, this is me. You're a little cutie. 
So I understand you were in a bad place yesterday. Uh, it's only weird if you make it weird. Rob, y- you managed to watch a, a, a few episodes from the first series of these. The quality of your afterlife in Upload is determined by your financial status. Rich people get to live in an all-inclusive resort mm. experience, basically, while the less well-off languish in two-gig purgatory, <laughs> where when they run out of data, they literally just go black and white and freeze until the end of the month. <laughs> yeah. what, what did you think of the premise? You know what, Alex? I wanted to like it more than I did. I feel like this is this is a sort of rich theme for drama at the moment. There's there's a few of them, you know, uh, from things like devs, which is sort of you know related, and also maybe even something like Sweet Tooth, where you have this sort of post-apocalyptic after tech life. But there was just something about this; it didn't land with me. I've got to be honest with you. I tried it, I and then I went into season two and tried that, but I could I found the characters. It was, it just, it felt, and maybe because I just threw myself into it, right? But I just found the characters just too stock. The caveat is it's American, so (laughs) it is schmaltzy, you know, it is cheese on toast mm. <laughs> and it's pop it's populated by impossibly beautiful people which i don't mind watching yeah, no i mean no i know me i mean me neither there was something you know also it reminded me a little also of oh god what's that film when um uh downsize you know there's an element of sort of that too where you sort of you, you pass through and then you're suddenly in this and it's and the world that we sort of pre- you're kind of presented with these two worlds and as you say one of them is like it's a luxury hotel and the other one you're literally like a medieval peasant like trying to live on on heritage tomatoes and and there's sort of there's nothing in between it sort of reminded me a bit i mean on that thing of very American sort of stock characters. But I watched that um, Nine Perfect Strangers recently, which which was very much like that. And it's sort of there's an element of that in it too, this where, sort of where do we go from here? How do we get over the kind of the place that we're, that we're currently in sort of culturally? And somehow that kind of, that sort of resonated with me more. I tried to sort of watch the last one and there was an element of the last one where the two main characters are stood in front of a, sort of glitching wall and it made me think of um WandaVision but WandaVision like you can sort of smell the money pouring off WandaVision and on this one it it almost felt a bit cheap which is not something you feel much when you're watching TV these days how about you Sean um is it is it still a a sort of smart way to address issues of inequality for a maybe a younger audience, maybe a more American audience, you know. It feels like a sort of upstairs, downstairs for the digital age, a sort of this is how the other half live. Um, what did you think of it? Yes, I mean, I agree with Rob in a certain way that a lot of it is simplistic. There are a lot of sarcastic, good-looking people. So in a sense, it's a sort of extension <laughs> of friends, but maybe a bit more diverse. And that's what those parks and recreations programmes, you know, they do that very well. We're going to give you that sort of bubblegum for the mind in yeah. terms of the visuals, but we're going to make everybody smart and a bit edgy and someone won't do I mean, it's a cross between... The- I say there's a lot of simulation drama at the moment about what life is like on the other side of that fence. So yeah. Severance, this is quite like, although I think Severance is much cleverer and much darker, which is the Apple TV show that we did a few weeks ago. Um, there's elements of It's a Wonderful Life of what would you have done better? What would you have done well? What's going on on the other side when you're not there? And I think those things are interesting. I liked it as a bubblegum theme. I don't think it's terribly deep. Um, my problem as well is it's on Amazon Prime and it's just like, hmm, that often sort of makes me not want to watch things on Prime because it's Amazon and it's Bezos and they seem to be contradictory. They're poking fun at actually what is the platform that sustains them. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's lots of contradictions in there, but it is funny. I think that um, the ca- uh, the character Nora I really like in this. Yeah. She has a bit more depth and I like the femme fatale of the girlfriend, the yes. awful girlfriend <laughs> as I think you had uh, described her. And there's quite a good bit of story there. It's not deep, but the sort of thing you can watch if you've got a slight cold, you know, and you just want to no, no, binge I, a little I, bit. I, agree I mean, we were you. discussing that earlier. I agree with you yeah. completely. It's basically mm. comfort uh, mm. watching, mm. Uh, I find it, comfort watching. The humour is sort of cookie and cringy and mm. non sequitur, much like Parks and Rec. Does that sort of thing make you 
laugh or is it not that sort of comedy? Yeah, it could be hit and miss, though. What did you think, Rob? Did you think, is it funny, funny? It didn't make me laugh out loud because I really like Parks and Rec. But that, to me, had that sort of, it had a sharpness to it. And, uh, you know, there was like a knife in the back element to it. Whereas this, this felt more sort of bland in a way. I guess I'm just averse to speaking against the show whose heart is so obviously mm. in the right place mm. because it feels to me like it is. And, and if I were trying to make my thing and its heart was in the right place, yeah. I would go to all the yeah. studios and take the money of anyone yeah. who gave of it course. to me. Right. Even if you... I know, Catherine, I know you didn't manage to, to watch uh, any of it this week because you've been so busy remixing. But Greg Daniels' writing partner in Parks and Rec in The Office created The Good Place, which is another sort of uh, gentle comedy about what happens when we die. And there's also Miracle Workers. Mm -hmm. There's Forever, again, on, on Amazon. Why is the afterlife, do you think, such a popular comedy premise at the moment? Well, what's going on? There is a whole genre developing, isn't there? Well, it's almost like a kind of proxy space for religion, isn't it? I think where, where uh, organised religion has dropped off, we have TV in place. It's so strange. Obviously, I didn't get a chance to watch it, but the premise very much reminded me of that episode of Black Mirror, the brilliant episode from that first season about this kind of constructed afterlife where you can sort of pay to plug in and have this kind of almost like VR alternative reality. Um, and I think that's... I do wonder whether it does kind of play into our current preoccupations with mortality obviously in the wake of the pandemic but also potentially imminent world war three and nuclear holocaust <laughs> where we're all being forced to think about this in ways that we don't have participation in organized religion in the way that we did before and therefore tv and consumer culture necessarily steps into that gap i think um to try and help us you know i always think of religion as being the stories that we tell ourselves to make sense of life and death and we just made that shift to TV. Well, there you have mixed views. Ingmar Bergman, it ain't. <laughs> I think that's, that's fair enough to say. But uh, um, I had the sniffles and I enjoyed it immensely. Um, and, uh, and very much looked forward to season two, which is now on Amazon Prime. Now, wait for one Sundance Award and three come along at once. Producer <laughs> Yelena Sofronovic and myself went to see the acclaimed Albanian movie Hive last week. It's now out this weekend. What did we think? Keep listening. There's certainly a cinematic buzz around the Balkans at the moment. Hive, the Albanian language drama, has become the first film in the history of the Sundance Film Festival to win all three main awards, the Grand Jury Prize, the Audience Award and the Directing Award. It tells the true story of Faria Hoti, a Kosovan war widow who's left adrift after the disappearance of her husband. Ilka Gashi plays Faria, trying to piece together her husband's death while supporting her family in a small rural village. Sean and I went to see it. The trailer's not in English, but it will give you a feel for the film. <laughs> The film is by debut director Blerta Basholi. Yelena, spoiler alert, your close family is from the former Yugoslavia. So how did you feel Basholi handled such a sensitive issue first as a conflict, as recent as this, as a setting for the film? I thought the film handled the idea of conflict perfectly. It does everything that I found a lot of existing films on the conflict in the former Yugoslavia often fail to do, because it really portrays the personal rather than the partisan or the political cost of conflict and focuses particularly here on women. So something that I come across often is that films will make very pointed mention of things like Serbian aggression. But here the war is referred to as quite an abstract entity. So mm -hmm. houses are burned down, but we're never told by who. Mm. And even the kind of true story ending credits mm -hmm. take quite a sensitive line in their approach. I think that the painfully slow lingering shots on Faria thinking are just 
a pleasure to watch in that sense because you really mm-hmm. see the toll on the family, how small details are completely overlooked, like when the daughter starts her period. And I think the whole film just really embodies the problem of the uncertainty of conflict and it's very ambiguous ending too whether or not she will ever find her husband just shows how war continues and lingers on and on and on in generations to come well yes absolutely it's how conflict doesn't end (laughs) there may be a ceasefire but as you're saying it goes on and it goes down the generation and there's trauma there too and as you say Ilka Gashi in the lead role often is not speaking in these scenes. You are just looking at the face and the toll that these things are taking on her. What did you think of her performance? I thought she was fantastic. From a very personal perspective, it was really refreshing to see my own heritage and characters that look like me on screen. It reminds me of a conversation we had a few weeks ago around Encanto, where we were talking about seeing food from across the world on screen. But I think that Ilka is just fantastic as the protagonist with her coarse, dark hair and her firm resolve in her stare. She's almost like a Balkan Sandra Bullock. I don't know if you felt like this as well, watching her. (laughs) Yes, I got that. She's very, very powerful. And I think her acting really pushes back against this idea about women as victims. Mm -hmm. It pushes Mm -hmm. back against the Balkanism and the tropes of these rural women. You just see her pragmatism in dealing with the situation and getting things done. Yes, she's absolutely stoic, but she is in the midst. She's mired in this deeply patriarchal system that we see. At one point, she gets a brick thrown through the car window while she's in the car. The attitudes of the village seem incredibly Stone Age, but this is a true life story and all this happened, didn't it? Yes, yeah. And I think that there's a real sense in this portrayal of understanding poverty with dignity. So Mm. her car is very worn down, as you mentioned, but she's very proud to be driving it because so few women were driving at that time. And you really see her strength there as well and how these women are really trapped in double standards because especially when husbands go missing during the war, they're forced to undertake both Mm. the mother and the father roles in the family, Mm. but they're still trapped in a very conservative, very patriarchal society. And you see how the women internalise the fear of gossip. There's tensions with her daughter. They have to overcome the fact that they're prevented in many ways from gaining an income or from becoming independent. And yet they're still expected to be the only source of income for the family. So I think that they really unpack the particular patriarchal society society and village society really, really well in this film. So we're talking about the main character, Faria, but this is not just about individual strength, is it? There is a collective strength. Who does she employ to help because she starts making pickles and she starts making honey, doesn't she? Or using the hive to make the honey, the hive of the time. Yeah, so I thought this was really interesting. So Faria basically launches this women's collective of other women who also have missing husbands because Mm. of the conflict. And they seek to create income through firstly driving, but then they start selling not just honey, but a very special product called Ivar. Now, Ivar is a little segue. At home, we call it Balkan hummus because it goes on absolutely everything in the Balkans. And it's basically a red pepper relish that's made from slow roasting peppers for many days and then peeling them. And then you blend it into a wonderful, Mm. wonderful mix. And for me, it is the taste of home. It did look particularly delicious. Yes, it is. And it's like I mentioned earlier with Encanto, just looking at these amazing jars of hummus mass produced on the shelves, firstly in the village, and then they sell it in a supermarket is so, so wonderful. Because Mm. often when I'm feeling very homesick, I will go to my local Balkan shop. I'll just go and stand along the various jars of Ivar and near the smoked meats and it evokes that sense of home for me. So it's really, really powerful to see that on the big screen, as I mentioned earlier. But yeah, so back to the, the women's collective. They work together to produce Ivar to sell it in the supermarkets. And you really understand the kind of machinery Mm. in this collective activity. And again, going back to that notion of dignity, we see how these products are both a source of economic income, but it's the Ivar, actually, not the honey. And the honey, we should point out, is made by the Mm. husbands before they leave. It's the Ivar that actually makes the women Mm. the profit. And I think that was a really powerful, very subtle Mm -hmm. point, really. Yeah, that's a good point. As you said earlier, I mean, it was quite good to see you get see the pictures of the real Faria with the star and the director of this film going to festivals. It's not a film about women struggling 
as a tragedy. Obviously, Farrier is a force of nature. And as you're saying, this is there is no unhappy ending here. We don't see a victim of something. We see someone pushing against it. And actually, she's a force of nature. And I found that really, really good. There is not a point where she is acting like a victim, mm. nor she, should she be treated like one. And she undergoes some terrible, terrible things throughout this. We see harassment. We see her searching body bags to try and find her husband. As you mentioned, the windows of her car are smashed. Mm. There's there's really graphic attempted rape scenes. So it's really, there's some very dark things covered in this film, but it's covered with a real lightness and a real dignity, as I mentioned. And I think as well, this idea of collective solidarity is what really pulls this film through. You see the women coming together. And at the very end, there's a scene where they start collar dancing, which is a traditional dance that you do in a circle. And it's the first time really that there's a bit of a release. And it's so wonderful to see that. And one of the women uh, casually makes a comment about how if we'd gone missing, then her our husbands would have remarried within a month. And it's those <laughs> Yeah. kind of little light moments of humour as well as those lingering moments that really lift this. Does she not say something like remarried younger women in a month? Yes, yes, exactly. So I just think as much as you know, our discussion of this might make it sound like a very serious film. There's actually so much warmth and emotion and lightness and it's just wonderful. And mm. I just can't stress enough for me, I feel like this does a lot of things that films on the conflict in Yugoslavia have failed to do in the past. Kovadish Aida, which came out last year and also received a lot of critical acclaim. And Honeyland is another good example, actually, of one about honey, which is set in Macedonia. It's a documentary and I think it really was fantastic, but but it also really did a lot to show the Balkans as that kind of other place, as a rural place, as a zany place, perhaps. Mm. Whereas what mm. this film really does is it brings home the reality of conflict in a much more universal way, in a much more relatable way. And I think is a really good in point for anyone who wants to try and understand what happened there in the 90s. Absolutely. And small mention, there's a Turkish film called Mustang, which I think is 2015, which is about oppressive male systems similar to this. It's different in many, mm. many ways, but it reminded me of that too, of just a window into the world, which we don't see enough. So I would heartily recommend this. I, I believe you would too, Yolanda. Oh, I would definitely recommend this. Now, on to music. Jenny Haval is a Norwegian musician and novelist, and Classic Objects is her eighth album. It was written in hashtag lockdown, but songs about feeling a bit cooped up, it ain't. Blending surrealism with stories about marriage, childbirth, and little sticks you find in the forest. No, wait, come back. Haval is a unique songwriter. <laughs> what do we think? We'll find out after we hear a bit of the track Year of Love. But in the The title Classic Objects almost starts as a challenge. These are familiar themes, but what will I do with them? What did you think of the album? I found this really tricky because I, I didn't kind of really understand the terms in which you were asking to be judged. And that's something I always think about. It's also very difficult when you're a musician songwriter yourself. It's horrible to have to judge your peers. We're not saying judge. Just <laughs> bring I, your experience I, to this. We don't have yeah, to judge. I guess I wasn't sure whether she was trying to write songs or whether she was trying to construct art. Mm. And I think depending upon sort of what her intentions are, depends on whether I feel sort of satisfied by it. It very much kind of reminded me of having similar creative intentions to what I think self-esteem does really, really well, which is to collide the worlds, the worlds, to collide the worlds of, of sort of very self-conscious Instagram-y kind of self-reflection with musical um, exploration. But I think the massive difference here is is that the music of Jenny Havel is, is is quite sort of pedestrian, and I think if you took the vocal off for me, it would be something very sonically interesting. 
but I, I just sort of felt, and she, she said this to herself, I, I was reading it, a few interviews that she'd done recently, and she said that she found that the music and words were butting up against mm. each other, and she, she said, my problem was I found the music component in the writing process made the words stray from their path and even jump into the absurd. So she's, she's identified the problem that I had this thing, which was that it sort of feels as if these are two disciplines that she's trying to master, and obviously she's also a successful novelist, but I found the marriage of them together not entirely convincing, I, I guess would be the the nicest way of putting it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I found myself drifting off into sort of thinking about other things. It didn't really hold my attention. Mm-hmm. Um, interesting, because I agree with you, but that's the reason why I really, really like this album. <laughs> we heard Year of Love there, which is about her marriage. One of the first lines is, I wore black jeans and codeine. She doesn't sound totally into it there's a reluctance there there's also a bit further down the song where she says i have signed a deal with patriarchy again it's a bit like damn (laughs) i found that really captivating is that these very stark lyrics there's a bit about blood in the second song american coffee about she is shocked about how red her blood is it almost feels like it doesn't come from her. But then you get these huge surrealist patches within it. And because I couldn't quite get it and grasp it, it made me want to listen to it more. And because I thought I haven't heard anything like this for a really, really long time, where there's lots of things going in different directions. And sometimes with the songs, they would go in one direction. And I almost thought, well, I don't know where this is going. And then they would suddenly turn, a right turn into something else. That was the thing to me that kept me listening. So sort of the sort of inverse experience that you had. Yeah, I think I was just waiting for some bangers. <laughs> I did think she needs to do sort of. Robin needs to remix one of the tracks. <laughs> I felt maybe that's a Scandinavian thing. One more line I will quote before I go to you, Rob. On classic objects, she says there was a painter in my first studio space that I remember. She used to attach her own hair onto paintings, and I thought, Björk, nineteen nineties. Rob, what did you think? Almost certainly. Um, I actually, I really enjoyed this. It's fine. I, I was I was very um, interested in what Catherine was saying there because I came mm. at this from a completely different angle, and I think actually this sort of highlights two things that Catherine said. One is that when you're making music, you it's very difficult to listen to other people's music. But one of the things mm. I really thought about this, about Jenny's album, and, and well done for getting to album eight, right? I mean, Jesus. Uh, yeah, is yeah. <laughs> that I was very much listening to it from a kind of, from the, what the sonics were, rather than getting lost in the detail of, of the things that she is or isn't trying to say. And I found it mm-hmm. as a listening experience. I really enjoyed it. Not all of it landed for me, but I particularly like Year of the Sky and um, Revolution Will Not Be Owned. And actually the title Mm -hmm. track as well, I thought was fantastic. And there was, I know, you know, it's hashtag lockdown, as you say. I mean, we've all done it. (laughs) It did feel very kind of, very intimate and very much like someone, I felt a kind of an enjoyment in it, a kind of freedom and enjoyment in it. That's what I was getting from it kind of sonically. And that's that's the, the enjoyment that I took away from it was definitely from that. I think it was interesting... Also, what Catherine said there about the sort of Instagram element, because the, a name that popped up when I was listening to it, it, it reminded me a little of kind of Lana Del Rey. You could, oh, as right. like a sort of right turn into that. Mm, um, mm-hmm. There was sort of an element of that in there. But then also, I'm an old bloke listening to this thing, right? <laughs> so it's like, I'm also listening to it from a distance, almost like through glass, like trying to go, well, I wonder mm. what this all means. Alex. She says she's interesting in combining heavenly things and plain things. Did you get that? I got that. You know, to declare an interest, my niece is a Norwegian songwriter and music maker. Mm-hmm. And, so, and so I don't think anyone, any other Norwegian woman is allowed to make music. Oh, I see. Until my niece <laughs> makes it big. Okay. Um, uh, I hope that seems mm. objective. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think... Jenny Fall is in a sort of very long tradition of Scandinavian literature that's that's obsessed with the metaphysical, mm-hmm. if if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So a lot of it sounded like modern um, takes on Ibsen. Mm. It is, to me, quite interesting that she's also a novelist because this is very much a words yeah. record. And and I find what Catherine said very interesting because she appreciated the, the sort of instrumental side of it more than the word side of it. And I understand why that is because I found that an obstacle. Mm. I basically 
I really liked the whole thing, but I also had the feeling that she was being very knowingly clever. Really? Yeah. And those lines that you mentioned that impressed you so much, mm. they they occasionally made me oh. go, oof. It, it, it was a little bit like, um, like amateur poetry. <sighs> I, look, I like the genre. I think mm-hmm. it's a valuable addition mm. to it. I think it has its audience, but its audience is not me. I I found it all rather knowing and guardianish. <laughs> Sorry. I'm astounded. I loved this album. Um she's quite new to me. I hadn't heard much of the other stuff. And I heard originally American Coffee, which is the second track on there, which is very long and also seems to encompass every experience that she has ever had including hallucinating Joan of Arc. And I just thought that that was completely spectacular. There are lines in it like a concept is a brick. This is what the midwives tell her in the hospital. It can be used to build a courthouse of reason or it can be thrown through the window. And I love that. You're right, it is very Ibsen. There's almost a Beckett idea of mm. these are some words, we're going to rearrange them, we'll put somewhere where they shouldn't be. And that to me just sounded really and exciting. And I love Ibsen. And, yes, and, and almost, I love that sort of metaphysical mm. uh, Scandinavian literature i just don't necessarily think all of it belongs in an album mm. that i listen to from start to finish well that's again it's those are the reasons why i like so the reason <laughs> why the people didn't like it the reasons why i really liked it is just such a mishmash of things her voice can sound very angelic and then it can sound very prosaic at the same time even though it's about all this stuff, to me, it didn't even sound pretentious. It sounded so full of play and experimentation. And yes, we'll put it out as it is. No corners seem to be cut. This is her vision and this is what she wanted to do. And to me, I just thought, wow, this is just the alternative pop album that I want. Finally, regular listeners know we also ask our guests to bring in their favourite songs of all time to add to our playlist. It's actually an almost impossible task, but we make them do it all the same. (laughs) Catherine, what did you choose and why? I found this really easy because I I read (laughs) it as a question, what is the greatest song of all time? And there is only one answer, only one correct answer, and that is Wichita Lineman by Jimmy Webb. It's it's easy. Everybody knows that that is. <laughs> uh, <okay. laughs> so we shouldn't even bother going to Rob, right? No. <laughs> yeah, I assume, yeah. Because if he has any sense. <laughs> yeah, I just think your playlist is just every <laughs> version of that song. It is the greatest song of all time. It will never be bettered. Um, we should all give up now and go home. And can we put the Glenn Campbell version on the playlist then? Okay. Yes, that is obviously the definitive version. Yep. Um, it's perfect in every way. It is a masterclass in songwriting. I tell all my students to go and study it and listen to it and um, hope that they can achieve 10% of its greatness. Wonderful. Rob, yes. follow that. Well, obviously, <laughs> Jimmy Webb's uh, "Which is a Line Man." I mean, that's uh, <laughs> which is a, a, a tremendous, a tremendous record for, with no no doubt about it. I didn't choose Jimmy Webb's "Which is a Line Man." I chose uh, Congo's "Children Crying." I actually I used to do a series for I think it was NME or something where I asked people what's the greatest record of all time. It is simple because there is one at the top of your mind, and you sort of you try to you know, jump around it and, and think what's a better one. Mm. Congo's Children Crying is just everything about it from the sonics to the production, which is the sonics, to the to lyrically, to just the feel of it, to the sort of air that it blows around the room is just perfection. And I couldn't live without it. Wonderful. Both these tunes will be on our rolling playlist. The link, as you know, is in the show notes. And the list is now on Tidal, too. And with that, we're at the end of the podcast and it's closing time chatter. What will we be discussing as we sit inside the small annex of a church waiting for Elton John to call? Because <laughs> I, I mean, you know, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. It me. is. It's yeah. it pro- you probably missed it while oh, we were recording this. Bugger. Catherine, what's your closing time chatter? I've been watching, the only thing I've watched actually for the past six months is Snowpiercer. Mm-hmm. And I watch it in the, in the wee small hours when I get a chance to wind down. And I'm obsessed with it. I, I hated it, first of all, because it was brutal and disgusting and horribly mm. violent. And I hate watching things like that. 
and I, I'm absolutely addicted and it's coming into its own, I think. I think we're on season three now, I think. And it's just absolutely brilliant. Every episode, I just cannot wait. And I love the fact that it's meeting out. You cannot binge it all in one go. You have to come back each week. It's just perfect kind of post-apocalyptic. Mm. For me, it, it, it very much kind of replicates my current experience of being shut in a kind of set environment. These people living on a train together in this frozen world, unable to get off the fear of freezing to death. Um, I absolutely love it if you haven't seen that. Mm. Another allegory, again, about systems about and inequality. Systems. Yeah, 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 yeah. Very good. Mm. Um, I, I second that, actually. I think Snow because I tried a couple of episodes once when yeah. it first came out. It kind of didn't do it for me. And then everyone kept saying good things yeah, about it. I did it. a few. I must go I back to it. I went back to it and watched sort of four or five episodes mm. and then I was completely hooked. Yeah. And it does get better mm. with each series, mm-hmm. actually. So so definitely worth checking Good recommendation. Out. Rob, what's your closing time chatter? It's about Wordle. And obviously it's it's taken over our house to the point where I'm often yeah. woken by my daughter <laughs> having completed it by sort of 10 past six in the morning and pinging everyone on the family app, a family WhatsApp. Mm -hmm. Um, I also, (laughs) I have this kind of existential dread every morning um, when I'm doing it, that the word I always start with, uh, I think, oh no, I'm going to start with a different word today. And then I think, but today will be the word, will be the day that actually is my word. And so every, every day as I'm, as, as I type out the first five, I have this fear, you know, that I'll chosen that one day to not do it. And so I always end up going back to the same word. But so it's like lottery numbers. Yeah, it's, a dull, like the lot, it's now yeah, completely like, superstitious for you. And you've, just, you've got to choose it. You've got to choose it and gone. stick with it, you know, because one day. Right, because I, I don't play this thing. So for the uninitiated, you need to choose a word. So it's, yeah, it's you get, uh, I think it's six attempts to, choo- to right. find a word, a five letter word. I always start with aside. Aside, that's a good and one. Then, um, and then you, you know, you've got to shuffle them around, right, to, to, to find yeah. out what the actual word is. Um, right. but, it's, but it's causing new stress. It's basically mastermind, but with letters. Do you remember mastermind where you yes, used to? Yes, And yes. it would tell you whether you got the right colour yeah. and whether it's know, also in the right I'm, position. I know I'm like the yeah. only person yeah, yeah. on earth who hasn't played it. I've not okay. played it either. Okay, right. So I, I did a daily on Wordle oh, when it first right. started taking yes. off that I would direct our listeners Daily bunker. to mm. yeah. um, with a, a professor on why games go viral and mm. why they are the new... Yes, but they're causing a bit of stress that way. Why you they need to are get the back new on. art space, basically. Right. Oh, okay. and, and his view was that Wordle is as big as it is because there's only one a day. Yes, absolutely. Um, yeah. and, and so there's this feeling that the company's not trying to make you play more mm. And everyone kind of loves that mm. yes, one a day's breath a lot, of fresh though, air. Yeah. That, you know, there's not someone saying, oh, we've released new levels. Play more mm. now. Devote more of your time to it. Yes, but it's been bought now, hasn't it? So they'll ruin it. Rob, you need to get onto Hurdle. Because yeah, I have, you know what? Hurdle? hurdle. Yes. Uh, well, you've got to guess the track from um, the first. I've heard yeah. of this. That's more appealing to me. Oh, I, oh I, yeah. I hadn't heard of that. Oh, yeah. I, I really like this. Catherine, tell, explain for us because you. Well, well it's, on this. I haven't played Wordle, but Hurdle is, is basically kind of, you know, name that tune essentially, mm. like how quickly yeah. you get the, yeah. the intro to a song, which is, yeah, much more up my street. And completely addictive. And and there's also Worldle, mm. which shows you the outline of a country. Yeah. And you take a guess at what country ah, it yes. is. Ah, yes. There should be Curdle. Can it, we invent that? And it tells you uh, how many miles you're off and in which direction. Curdle, so guess the dish. So you have to try and triangulate, basically, yeah. which country it is. Curdle. But there's, uh, yeah. there's the, the other one that's, that's very popular in the house is Global. Which oh, is uh, basically. You've not got any work to do, a well, school to do, you lot. Garden leaf, garden leaf, sweetie. So, <laughs> so gloriously, no. But uh, global is like an easier version of Worldle because global is you have to you click on the globe and then you go, I don't know, is it Peru? And they go, no, you're miles away. And then as you get closer, the countries, you know, it tells you what's the closest country you get to. And then you can just simply open up your map app and go, what are the countries around this country? And then, so you it's you can cheat every single day. Yeah, remember, listeners, you can actually go places and see people and have real conversations with real people <laughs> in real life. Well, not if you've got Rona, like what I've got. So, uh, well, yeah, yeah I know, yeah. and not if you're shielding yeah. like Catherine. Yeah. But no, you know, exactly. <laughs> it's not all in apps. Is what no, I'm trying isn't. to say in a very luddite way, an annoying way. Alex, what's your closing time? Um, 
So the French government is launching a, a, a 1 million euro support fund for refugee Ukrainian artists uh, fleeing the war following the Russian invasion. And the, the, the scheme, which is by the French Ministry of Culture, will also be open to dissident Russian artists. The Italian culture secretary has promised to rebuild the Mariupol theater, which was destroyed. Mm -hmm. And I just think... Art is one of the most important and effective tools we have against oppression. We must press our government to do more on this, on the cultural and arts side. And we must press the point that art is not a luxury. Mm -hmm. You know, feeding the soul is some, not some afterthought that people <laughs> need if, they're not, if their body is not being fed. It, it is in this kind of bleakness that people need hope the most. It is in this kind of darkness that people need light the most. And so we need to work hard and push the government against this notion that art is not important mm -hmm. in times of war. It is arguably most important in times of war. What's yours, Sean? Mine, <laughs> uh, from the sublime to the ridiculous. Minnie Mouse has released a lo-fi hip-hop album. I kid you not. There is... <laughs> yeah, let, let that sink in. There are remixes <laughs> of Disney tracks. That has been dubbed Chill Hop, apparently, but I thought that would be chill out, or Beats to Study To. It's sort of for kids and it's sort of for adults, but it is under the moniker Lo-Fi Mini, and she is on the album sleeve. And I listened to a little bit of it this morning, and actually it is really relaxing. There aren't any lyrics. You don't have to concentrate. You can get on with your day. Um, and I rather like this. So uh, Sparks apparently name drop uh, Minnie Mouse quite a lot, but she's not come to the fore as a sort of a musical curator as such. But I believe that, you know, she could have a long and happy future doing this. Apparently she's 94 years old. But I'm very pro Minnie Mouse. Um, and I believe that this, this is the kitschest thing I've ever heard, but also the most sensible in a crazy mixed up world like today. And that's the end of the podcast. Thanks so much to Catherine, a.k.a. The Anchoress. Thank you, Catherine. Thank you for having me. And Rob Fitzpatrick, a.k.a. Rob Fitzpatrick. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a total pleasure. Thank you both Thank for you. joining us on The Culture Bunker. May you have the most wonderful of weekends. Don't forget you can get all the tunes on our rolling playlist. The link is at the top of the show notes. Then go support your favourite artists. From myself and Sean and producers Alex Reese and Yelena Sofronievich, thank you for listening. We will see you next week. The Culture Bunker was presented by Sean Pattenden with Alex Andre. The group editor was Andrew Harrison. And the producers were Yelena Sofronievich and me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Culture Bunker is a Podmasters production.